Welcome to the March 18th, 2021 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we will review a study that looks at primary diffuse large B-cell lymphoma of the central nervous system, comparing tumor biologic features associated with Epstein-Barr virus. Examine the functions of regulatory T-cells in thrombus resolution in a mouse model. And learn more about subsequent malignant neoplasms in treated pediatric patients with Hodgkin lymphoma. Our first topic is a study entitled EBV tissue-positive primary CNS lymphoma occurring after immunosuppression is a distinct immunobiological entity, conducted by Maher Gandhi and Colum Kane from Matter Research Institute UQ in Brisbane, Australia, and their colleagues. Primary central nervous system lymphomas, or PCNSL, are a rare form of extranodal non-Hodgkin lymphoma that is confined to the brain, eyes, and cerebrospinal fluid without evidence of systemic spread. It most commonly has a diffuse large B-cell lymphoma histology, a median age of 65 years at diagnosis, and accounts for approximately 1% of all NHL cases. Infrequently, PCNSL occurs with immunosuppression, for example, as a post-transplant lymphoproliferative disorder, or PTLD, or with HIV. Although no accurate figures exist, it has been estimated that overall PCNSL after immunosuppression accounts for less than 10% of PCNSL cases. These patients are typically younger than non-immunosuppressed PCNSL patients and have dismal outcomes. Since clinical trials for PCNSL often exclude patients with PTLD and HIV, Optimal clinical management is unknown, and there are no consensus guidelines. In recent years, understanding of the molecular pathogenesis of PCNSL has improved. Recurrent mutations have been identified in the B-cell receptor signaling axis and its downstream target, NF-kappa-B. These mutations principally involve MIDE88, CD79B, the cell adhesion gene PIM1, and less often, CARD11 and TNF-AIP3. Phylogenetic analysis indicates that the MIDE88 mutation is an early clonal event. Due to its rarity, characterization of the immunobiological features of PCNSL after immunosuppression remains minimal, with the largest published series restricted to microRNA profiling of nine cases. It is known, however, that the malignant B-cells are typically positive for Epstein-Barr virus, or EBV. Here, Gandhi and colleagues present their analysis of the first large-scale comparative dataset on the genetic and gene expression profile of PCNSL subtypes, stratified by EBV tissue and HIV status. They used targeted sequencing and digital multiplex gene expression to compare the genetic landscape and tumor microenvironment of 91 PCNSL cases. Of the 91 cases, 47 were EBV tissue negative, including 45 HIV negative and 2 HIV positive PCNSL samples. 44 cases were EBV tissue positive. 
comprising 23 HIV-positive and 21 HIV-negative samples. As with prior studies, EBV-negative HIV-negative cases had frequent MIDE88, CD79B, and PIM1 mutations, and enrichment for the activated B-cell, or ABC, cell of origin subtype. In contrast, these mutations were absent in all EBV tissue-positive cases, and the ABC subtype cell of origin frequency was low. Instead, these cases exhibited a germinal center B-cell, or unclassified molecular cell of origin subtype. Furthermore, copy number loss in HLA class 1 and 2, and antigen-presenting and processing genes were rarely observed, indicating retained antigen presentation. EBV-positive, HIV-negative PCNSL cases had a tolerogenic tumor microenvironment with elevated macrophage and immune checkpoint gene expression, whereas AIDS-related PCNSL had low CD4 counts and macrophage markers. This is not surprising, as CD4-positive T-cells and CNS-associated macrophages are key targets of HIV infection. Based on their data, the authors conclude that EBV-positive PCNSL in the immunosuppressed is immunobiologically distinct from EBV-negative, HIV-negative PCNSL, and despite expressing an immunogenic virus, retains the ability to present EBV antigens. In their accompanying commentary, Mark Roshewski and James Fallon from the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, highlight the strikingly distinct genetic and immunologic features of PCNSL based on EBV status, including differences in gene expression, genetic drivers, signatures within the tumor microenvironment, and oncogenic signaling pathway addictions. Additionally, the study reinforces the notion that PCNSL encompasses a spectrum of diseases, and comprehensive tumor profiling is needed to fully characterize their biology which may respond differently to novel treatments. They suggest future clinical trials in CNS lymphomas should incorporate this molecular framework, and that genomic studies should aim to further define exploitable weaknesses of these difficult-to-treat tumors. Our next study is entitled Specialized Regulatory T-Cells Control Venous Blood Clot Resolution Through SPARC by Fatima Shane and Christian Becker from the University Medical Center Mainz in Germany and their colleagues. Deep vein thrombosis, or DVT, is a major cause of permanent disability and mortality globally. In addition to thrombotic damage, post-thrombotic syndrome, or chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, are frequent consequences of DVT. Over the years, it has become evident that the immune system plays a pivotal role in both thrombus formation and resolution. Although the specific involvement and role of the majority of the immune cell subtypes in thrombus formation and resolution have not yet been elucidated, research in immunothrombosis is advancing. Chronic DVT complications are partly related to persistent inflammation that delays thrombus resolution. Monocytes play a major role in blood clotting and inflammation, but are also involved in the breakdown of thrombi through fibrinolytic and collagen remodeling activities. How these different monocyte activities are regulated in the course of blood coagulation is largely unclear. In a previous study, 
Shane and colleagues observed that effector memory T-cells delay thrombus resolution through antigen-dependent interferon gamma production and mutual activation of myeloid cells. They noticed that CD4-positive FOXP3-positive regulatory T-cells, or Tregs, accumulate in venous thrombi undergoing degradation. Tregs suppress pathological immune responses, maintain tissue homeostasis, and potentiate tissue repair after damage. While immunoregulatory Treg activities in lymphoid tissues have been extensively studied, little is known about Treg activities in non-lymphoid tissues. In particular, their potential role in venous thrombosis has not been investigated. In this study, the authors used a mouse model of partial flow in the inferior vena cava to induce thrombus. By isolating immune cells at different time points after the partial occlusion, they showed that Tregs accumulate in the thrombus over time. They described a specialized population of Tregs that accumulate in thrombosed veins and regulates thrombolysis by controlling the recruitment, differentiation, and matrix metalloproteinase, or MMP, activities of monocytes. Clot Tregs were recruited from both the thymus and the periphery and differentiated into an activated resident phenotype. This population of clot-associated Tregs generate the matricellular acid and cysteine-rich protein, SPARC. In addition, they demonstrate that SPARC enhances monocyte MMP activity and that SPARC-positive Tregs are crucial for blood clot resorption. In their accompanying commentary, Bram van Oss and Esther Lutkens from the Amsterdam University Medical Centers in the Netherlands discuss these novel findings as well as lingering questions. For example, they highlight the study's findings that Tregs produce spark when stimulated with IL-18, IL-33, and TGF-beta, without T-cell receptor stimulation. This favors the hypothesis that spark-positive Tregs are tissue-induced, particularly since these cytokines are associated with the vasculature and produced by endothelial cells. Van Oss and Lutkins indicate that it would be of interest to determine whether exposure to TGF-beta alone could induce the same spark phenotype, since TGF-beta is known to induce FOXP3 expression. The potential therapeutic implications of these findings are also intriguing. In their mouse model, the investigators showed that the expansion of spark-positive Tregs in combination with anticoagulants results in improved clot resolution thereby preventing chronicity of thrombotic disease. Of interest, the effects of the spark-positive Tregs appear to be limited to one thrombotic event, providing a potential targeted treatment option with limited side effects. However, additional research into the distribution and mechanisms of spark-positive Tregs are needed, as well as the relevance of this Treg subset in human thrombosis. With these caveats, Spark-positive Tregs may be important in other diseases, such as atherosclerosis, stroke, and cancer. And this study will certainly stimulate further interest in the immunobiology of DVT. Our final report today is entitled Subsequent Malignant Neoplasms Among Children with Hodgkin Lymphoma a report from the Children's Oncology Group by Lisa Gelino roth from Weill Cornell Medical College in New York 
Deborah Friedman from Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, and their colleagues. Based on current treatments, children and adolescents with Hodgkin lymphoma, or HL, have excellent outcomes with event-free survival now exceeding 85%. Unfortunately, the high cure rate is accompanied by the cost of a potential risk for long-term toxicity that can diminish life expectancy and quality of life for survivors. HL survivors are at increased risk for subsequent leukemia, sarcomas, breast cancer, thyroid cancer, and other malignancies. The risk for leukemia is associated with exposure to alkylating agents and topoisomerase II inhibitor chemotherapy, the greatest majority occurring within 10 years of exposure. Solid tumor risk is associated with exposure to radiation therapy, or RT, and or alkylating agents and increases in incidence over time without plateau. Response-adapted treatment approaches for HL seek to reduce long-term toxicity while maintaining high cure rates by reducing therapy in patients with a rapid response to initial therapy and or escalating therapy in patients with a slow early response. The Children's Oncology Group study AHOD0031 was a response-adapted Phase three trial conducted among children and adolescents with newly diagnosed intermediate-risk Hodgkin lymphoma. This study is the largest pediatric Phase three HL trial reported to date and provides an opportunity to evaluate risks of subsequent malignant neoplasms, or SMNs, using a standard pediatric treatment regimen. Here, the authors report on updated outcomes from the AHOD0031 trial and the incidence and risk factors for SMNs among 1,711 pediatric patients. Treatment consisted of response-based therapy using the ABVEPC chemotherapy backbone, consisting of doxorubicin, bleomycin, fincristine, etoposide, prednisone, and cyclophosphamide. Patients with a rapid early response after two cycles of ABVEPC and a complete response after four cycles were randomized to receive 21-gray-involved field RT versus no further RT. Patients with slow early response to two cycles of ABVEPC received a total of four cycles of ABVEPC with or without an additional two cycles of dexamethasone, etoposide, cisplatin, and cytarabine, or DECA. All patients with a slow early response received involved field RT. Given the time frame of the study, all patients treated with RT received photon-based therapy. Among the entire cohort, approximately 27% of patients were treated with chemotherapy alone. With regard to outcomes, the 10-year event-free and overall survival were 81.5% and 96.1% respectively. Among patients receiving a rapid early response and complete remission who were randomized to receive RT versus no RT, there were no statistically significant differences in 10-year event-free and overall survival. Similarly, there were no significant differences in 10-year outcomes among patients with a slow early response who were randomized to DECA versus no DECA. At a median follow-up of 7.3 years, an analysis of SMNs was performed. The 10-year cumulative incidence of SMN was 1.3%. These cases included three patients with AML, three with non-Hodgkin lymphoma, and 11 with solid tumors. Notably, 
Six of these 11 solid tumors were papillary thyroid carcinoma, all in the RT field. In total, nine of the 11 solid tumors originated in the RT field. 16 of the 17 patients with an SMN had received combined modality therapy. All patients who developed a solid tumor SMN had received RT, and only one patient with invasive breast cancer had also received DECA. Relative to the general population, the standardized incidence ratio for SMN was 9.5%, with an excess absolute risk of 1.2 per 1,000 person years. The 10-year cumulative incidence of SMNs was higher among patients who were exposed versus those not exposed to RT. Given the latency from exposure, the investigators felt they had likely captured all cases of secondary leukemia. In multivariate analysis, RT, B symptoms, and for unknown reasons, Asian race, were associated with an increased risk of SMN. In summary, the authors report the relatively low 10-year cumulative incidence and spectrum of SMNs among pediatric patients with intermediate risk HL treated on the largest phase three trial in this population reported to date. In this cohort, the risk of secondary AML was low. However, Longer follow-up with continued surveillance for SMNs is needed to determine the risk of solid tumors, particularly those such as thyroid and breast, whose tissue is commonly included in the RT field. Avoidance of radiation without sacrificing disease control should remain a goal for future therapeutic approaches. As Nancy Bartlett reminds us in her accompanying commentary, the mantra for HL trial design has been maintain cure rates, minimize late effects, especially in the most vulnerable pediatric and young adult populations. With reduction in the use, dose, and field of RT for HL used in this clinical trial compared to older studies, the authors are hopeful that the cumulative incidence of solid tumors will remain low. They conclude that an understanding of the risks and benefits of this treatment approach is essential to determining how to manage HL survivors as well as how best to design future clinical trials for children and adolescents with HL. In this regard, Bartlett highlights that the incorporation of highly active novel agents, such as the antibody drug conjugate brentuximab vidotin, or checkpoint inhibitors into earlier lines of therapy, are likely to increase cure rates, hopefully limiting the need for RT and more toxic agents. Accompanying this report by the Children's Oncology Group are study-related CME questions developed by the American Society of Hematology. Please find these questions by going to www.bloodjournal.org. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.